if Moses was writing Job, he was writing also about the Messiah. And the book of Job is screaming, Messiah, Yeshua. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Golan Brosh. Dr. Brosh is a professor of the One for Israel Bible College just outside Tel Aviv, Israel, where he teaches Bible and Hebrew and theology. And he's also one of the authors of the recently released book entitled Rabbinic Judaism Debunked. And it's with his expertise in biblical Hebrew and interpretation that Dr. Brosh is going to help us better understand the book of Job today. Dr. Brosh, shalom and welcome to the podcast. Hi, shalom from Israel. Shalom and thank you for the privilege. Well, let's start here. I like to begin at a very simple level when we come to a book of the Bible, Dr. Brosh. When we come to the book of Job specifically, where do we find ourselves in the story of scripture? How does it relate to the other books, of the Old Testament, things like that? That's an excellent question. In Jewish tradition, the book of Job is part of the wisdom books. The wisdom books is the books of Solomon, the, the, book, the book of David, you know, Psalms. Uh, so, so it's, it's Ecclesiastic, you say, Proverbs, um, Psalms, and the book of Job are all part of what we call the wisdom books, where the wisdom of God is the center of the book. The center of the, of the narrative is the wisdom of God. And... I'll tell you another thing because I don't know if we if we'll have the time in the in this podcast. But the scholars are saying, and this is this is really radical, that the wisdom of God is not something. The wisdom of God is someone. So how does it relate to? We've just come through the Pentateuch, some of the Old Testament, the history of Israel. How does Job relate and fit in? Do we know anything about its timeline relevance? Yes, so scholars debate that, but I'll go with Jewish tradition, which says, and this is, again, this is really interesting, says that Moses, Moses himself wrote the book of Job, and some scholars are saying that Job could be dated to the time of Abraham or a little bit before Abraham, and mm. I, I think I agree with that. Very interesting. So it's an early book. It's an early book. Actually, some scholars say it could be the earliest book mm. in the history of the world. Wow. Well, how about now that we've come to the book of Job, you've kind of situated us in the canon. Uh, what about the book as a whole? Maybe you could give us a snapshot of the book, an aerial view, an outline of the book. What's the big picture of Job? So if you like sandwiches, the book of Job is like a sandwich. We have, a, it's, it's called in Hebrew, like an envelope structure. So it begins with a narrative. It ends with a narrative and all the middle, the, the, the biggest chunk is the, is, is the, the, the poetic part part of the, the, the dialogue, the arguments between Job and his friends. Excellent. Now, when we come to Job, you've already mentioned a few of these, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of the book of Job, you're the expert. Job is Hebrew poetic wisdom literature. Am I right? Exactly. Okay. So it's Hebrew poetic wisdom literature. And you add to that some of the seemingly fantastical content of the book. It's amazing what happens in this book. How do you approach the book? Do you take it as historical or some form of allegory? Why? And does it even matter how we approach the book? This is a wonderful question because in Jewish history, there's debate that the, the rabbis themselves, the rabbis of the, in, uh, the time of the Mishnah, the time of Yeshua debated if Job was a real person or was it just like an illustration, like a, like a model, like a prototype 
of a man that never existed. And some rabbis say he existed, some say he didn't. I think he existed, but I think Moses took the story of Job and, and, and did something with it. I don't want to tell you uh, now because I want to, I want to keep, keep our uh, uh, listeners in suspense, yeah? But, but Moses did something amazing with a figure, with this historical man named Job. Very interesting. So you'll get to this a little bit more and flesh out yeah. how that kind of affects the way you read it. Clearly, both you and I agree that this is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God and useful. Yeah. And we'll come to the usefulness of it in a moment here. But that's very helpful as well. Now, we come to the opening scenes of this book, which are just fascinating. Fascinating. We have in the opening scenes, we read of Satan not only gaining access to God Almighty, but he's also being allowed by God to test Job, who we're told is a righteous man. And he tests him in some pretty dramatic ways, to say it uh, lightly. I'm wondering if you can help us understand, why would God allow this? This seems to a casual reader, perhaps someone that's new to the Bible, honestly, even to some mature believers, it seems unfair and almost cruel. So help us think through this, Dr. Broch. So Job is the excellent example of if, if we had a graph and I could picture it of a U, the letter U, somebody that starts in the top, he goes down to the bottom, suffers a lot, and then God blesses him back again and he goes back to the top. Like for instance, Mordecai, or of course, Joseph, the story of Joseph, and mm -hmm. our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Yeshua himself. So Job is the perfect, the perfect example of this U, the scholars are saying like the, the like the letter U in English. And he starts, of course, the richest man, probably the wisest man, the most mm -hmm. pious, the righteous man. And then there's a meeting, there's a heavenly meeting, as you mentioned, in the, there's a heavenly meeting when God is, is, is calling his uh, his angels or the sons of God, it says in Hebrew, and, the, and Satan appears also. And then God, God is provoking Satan and telling him, did you see my servant Job? He's so perfect, you know. It's as if it's like God is poking Satan to, 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 to do something. And Satan says, and this is the most, um, the, the, the most important verse of the whole book. Hmm. It's Job 1, if you can read it in English. Job chapter 1, verse 9. It says, then Satan answered the Lord. Does Job fear God for nothing? Yes. And that's the engine or the motivation for the whole test, for the whole book mm. of Job. Does he fear God for nothing out of pure love, pure intrinsic motivation to fear God and, and to worship him? Or Satan says, he only does it because you blessed him, because you gave him something, because you promised him something. What is his motivation? And that's mm. the key for the whole book. And so the book goes on to showcase that Job's righteousness is not based on material benefits he gets from the Lord God, right? That it's actually a love for the Lord, because as you said, at the bottom of the U, everything is stripped away and he still will not, as his wife calls him to do, call out to God, curse him and die. And I'll tell you more, you know, the, the, the problem of Job's friends is that they understood the righteousness of God only too well, because what did his friends are always saying, if you suffered, it means you're, you, you, you have a sin in you. You, you got you to gotta confess a sin. And Job is saying, uh, if, if I have a sin, show me. But the righteousness of God 
says, if you do right, God is going to bless you. If you do wrong, God is going to curse you. Mm-hmm. And Satan says, you, you know, Satan says something brilliant. He says, God, this is no good. This is no good because if I, I'm worried, I'm worried about the motivation. If you promise people that you're going to bless them, it could be the only reason why they worship you. They would fear you only because you're going to bless them. So Satan found something, uh, you could say, wrong with this system which promises good blessings for good, for, for, for fearing God. It's as if Moses is telling us, again, I think Moses wrote it. It's as if Mo- Moses is telling us this is not good enough because this system of righteousness could turn people into um, like prosperity gospel, for instance. You're going to worship God only because what he can promise you. So your motivation would be in the final analysis, what you can get out of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember this theology, which we'll get to the, his friends, quote unquote, in a moment here. But this theology that they seem to be pushing on Job or or demanding of him is referred to as retribution theology or teleonic justice, this tip for tat type of theology. And, And you tied it today so well with the prosperity gospel, where we almost control God like a remote control car. I do this, therefore he must do this. I wonder if you can say for a moment, Dr. Broch, of, of the, and you've already hinted at it, the devastating effects of a theology like that. Practically, as I live out my life, if I slip into the theology that Job's friends are proposing here, how does that hurt my understanding of God, my role, my life, etc.? And And you know, it's hard to blame Job's friends because they saw Job before, before he, he got hit. They saw him as the richest man the, the, the most righteous man. Hmm. So they saw the righteousness of God working in Job's life. And now everything is turned upside down and, and you can almost not blame them for thinking that there's something wrong with Job because they're not used to any other system. This is how the world works. And of course it can affect our, our, our lives as believers. This is what the book is asking us. What is our motivation? Hmm. Why are we fearing God? Why are we worshiping God? to get something out of it, or because we love him. Remember, Yeshua said to his disciples, if you love me, you shall obey my, uh, obey my commandments. What a probing question that is. If they, everything was stripped away from me, would I still run after God? Is God enough? Is Christ enough for me? Exactly. Rather than all the bells and whistles of this world. If that is the, like you said, the point of this book, like in chapter one, verse nine, what a powerful probing question that is for each of us well we already started to talk about job's quote-unquote friends these people who come to his aid when he's most hurting in the bottom of that you i guess everything's stripped away he's sitting in the dirt scraping sores off his body he's destitute a picture of destitution and he has these friends that come to visit him i'm wondering if you can comment on their uh, their quote-unquote ministry to him what did they do right what did they do wrong so the first thing they do is right they come to him and they, they sit with silence, observing. You can almost feel like they observing his pain. And they say nothing. I think for, for seven days, they say absolutely nothing. And maybe that's the best thing we can do if we, if we want to mourn with somebody, if we want to identify with, with, with someone. Now, the interesting part is that the, uh, chapter three starts with Job. Yet Job starts his, his monologue. But they, they didn't say anything. But it's, it's, it's so remarkable because it's as if 
even though they didn't say anything, he felt like they're accusing him. You know what I mean? So he had to defend himself. Yes. <laughs> so they come one after another. And like you rightly said, sometimes if you've ever sat with someone who's grieving, almost the best thing to do with them is just sit and cry with them. And they're really excellent counselors until they start to speak, aren't they? Yeah, yes. And, 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 and it's really simple. You know, everything they say can be boiled down to one thing. Joe, confess your sins. You're not more righteous than God. You, 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 everybody sins. Don't be ashamed. Just confess and God will bless you again. It's not a problem. But, but just confess you sin because there's no pain without sin. And, 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 and this is the most maybe radical point of the whole book. The introduction of the suffering servant of God. An idea that was absolutely shocking in the times of the Torah, in the times of the sages, in the time before Moses, the time of Abraham. This is an introduction to a, to a, a whole different chapter in spirituality in the world, in the, the whole world. A suffering servant. It, it's like an oxymoron. You, 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 know, you know, when I say an oxymoron, you know what I mean? Like the opposite, two opposites? Yes, they shouldn't go together. Yeah, if you're a servant of God, you can not possibly be suffering. And if you're suffering, it means you're not a servant of God. It means you've sinned. But the book of Job is maybe the most radical introduction or exposition for, the, for this notion of a suffering servant. So by my count, there are four friends. There's Eliphaz, Bildad. Sofar. We say Sofar in Hebrew. Sofar. And they kind of speak in one... One accord. Yes. But then there's this fourth man, Elihu, who comes to speak to Job. I wonder if you can talk to us for a moment about the difference in his message and what he brings to the table. Yes, so we know by, by what Elihu starts with, with, with this introduction, we know that he listened the whole time because he said, I heard you. So we know that he listened the whole time. We know he's the youngest because that's what he said. And we know that he's the only one that has a lineage, uh, like a dynasty. So scholars are saying he could be the only the only Jewish person in the book of Job uh, is, is Elihu. Now, his part is crucial, not necessarily because what he says, but because of the of the placement of where he is in the book. And he's between Job and his friends and between God. So you could say Elihu is like the mediator mm. or he, re he, he reflects the need for a mediator between God and man. I wonder if you can make a comment on, there's a verse in chapter 19, in the midst of this back and forth between Job and his friends, yes. where Job in defense of himself in chapter 19, verse 25, says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Now, I want you to correct me. You speak Hebrew. This is your first language. As an English student reading this in my English Bible, that looks to me like Job knows more than I give him credit for. He's looking for a redeemer that will physically stand upon the land. What am I missing here, Dr. Broch? No, you're not missing. You're not missing anything. And actually, there's a big debate about the right uh, translation of this of, of, of this verse. And actually, you know, there's a, there's a one professor that says that if you are if you're a Hebrew native speaking uh, man, you have a disadvantage because your, your modern Hebrew 
would, would cause you, would give you a bias towards the biblical Hebrew. So, so you might have an advantage on me because I, I know more than Hebrew and it could be a disadvantage when I'm reading the biblical Hebrew. Yeah, so don't underestimate the, 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 the power of translations. <laughs> well, I'll take any advantage I can get. Yeah, but it's exactly, it's exactly right. It's exactly what you said. Now, I just want the listeners to pay attention. If Moses wrote this book, remember what Yeshua told his disciples again and again, and he told the Pharisees also. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. So think about it. If Moses was writing Job, he was writing also about the Messiah. And the book of Job is screaming, Messiah, Yeshua, Yeshua the Messiah. Absolutely screaming this after, you know, but every, almost every second line. So this, I'm guessing, stretches back to Genesis 3, where God promises after the fall, there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And is my understanding right that God's people and people in general have been longing for the fulfillment of that Genesis 3 Proto-Evangelion, that, that exactly. God would send this one, this serpent killer, to right the wrongs that we caused in this world. And Job is picking up and embellishing upon that, that this redeemer, this serpent crusher, is going to come and stand upon the earth. Now think about it. Why did, why, why did the Jewish people in general, in a whole, rejected Yeshua? Because they were expecting this seed, this Messiah, to, to crush the Romans, to be a mm -hmm. victorious king. And Yeshua embodied in himself the suffering servant as we see in Job. He came as a suffering servant. Now, why do scholars see the Messiah in Job? They see uh, Job's friends as representative of Israel. Now listen, what are his friends are thinking? They're thinking, Job, you suffer because of your sin. Now this is exactly what, what the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought about Yeshua. They thought he was on the cross because of his own sins. And they didn't figure out this radical idea of a suffering Messiah, a Messiah that would take upon himself their sins. And in the end, God is telling Job, now you pray for your friends, pray for Israel. And what did Yeshua say on the cross? Forgive them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't understand. They're expecting, a, a, they're expecting the, the, the promised seed that was promised to Eve, but they're expecting only a king. And they don't, and they miss the part of a suffering servant. And the book of Job reminds us this, a suffering servant for the sake of his friends, even though despite their thinking that he suffers for his own sake. No, he suffers for their, their sake. He's innocent. He's righteous. He's, he's pure. He's the perfect. I got chills. It's a beautiful picture as it looks forward. And we know our blessed hope is that he is going to come as king one day. He is going Amen. to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to liberate this world and redeem it. And we look forward to that day. Amen. Remember, remember that you, remember that letter you, after he was buried, he was rowed, he, he, God raised him from the dead. And now he, he, his name is above every other name. So like God bless Job, you know, the name of Yeshua now is again, the name above, of, above all names. And every initial bow. Wow. Well, after Job and his friends interact for a number of chapters, Dr. Broch, God finally speaks for himself in chapter 38. I'm wondering if you can summarize God's speech and Job's responses to him, although they are pretty minimal. And in this back half of the book, what do we learn about God, his character, and his ways? If there was any question in the opening scene about God's character being less than perfect, 
he really screams that that's not the case in the back half. I wonder if you can take us through those last chapters. Yes, and remember, God appears from the, it says in Hebrew, from the wind, from the, like a storm. God appears from the storm after Elihu finishes, not after Job, after Elihu. So again, scholars, and I, and I don't blame them, I'm, I actually I agree with them. Scholars see the, the parallel between John the Baptist. What did John do? He prepared the way for the Lord. So Elihu, in a sense, prepared the way, prepared the heart of Job for God to appear from the storm. And the interesting part is that God never answers jo any, any of Job's uh, questions. Because Job, Job wants to know why. God, why am I suffering? But remember, Job is the book of wisdom. It's not, it's, it's not about why. It's about the wisdom of God. And we know, and scholars admit, even, even Israeli secular scholars admit that the wisdom of God is someone, is someone that created the world. It's like the word, the logos that created the world. And this is why God appears from the storm and he gives, actually what he demonstrates is the wisdom of God in creation. He doesn't answer the, the question of suffering. He doesn't tell Job about the test, about Satan, anything that happened in heaven. Nothing about that. The focus is on the wisdom of God. And again, we have to remember, the wisdom of God is not some, it's not something, it's someone. And this is why I say the book of Job screams, Yeshua the Messiah, mm. someone by which God created the world. I wonder if you can pastor us through something for a moment here, Dr. Brosh. There's a point in the text where God says to Job, with a string of rhetorical questions, where were you? You're asking these questions and God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you? Tell me if you know. And he's basically saying, you don't understand how far above you I am. You're asking questions to which you cannot know the answers. Yes, and of course, remember the book was, was written for us. Yeah, because, because if Moses wrote it, he wrote it after the time of Job. So of course the book wasn't written for Job. The book was written for our sake. So it, actually the book is telling us, you're asking the wrong questions, guys. Don't focus on yourself. Focus on God, on his way of ruling the world. And again, through his wisdom, by which he created the world. And we know that he created the world by his word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. So again, the whole fo focus of the book is not ourselves and why are we, why didn't I pass this exam or why didn't I make it to the soccer team? The focus is on God. Where were you? Again, it's God is asking Job, but remember the word of God is asking every one of us. Who are you? I mean, who do you think you are? That's what God is saying. Who do you think you are? You think everything revolves through um, around yourself? You know, God is bigger than, than us or our world. You know, he's the creator and he wants us to think about the creator and especially about the suffering servant, which is the, uh, the, the fulfillment of wisdom. There are certainly moments in our lives when we're perhaps suffering, maybe not as much as Job, but we're suffering. <laughs> we're, there's persecution or we have doubts. And I think David models in another wisdom book that 
we can call out to God with questions. You know, where are you, God? And typically in the Psalms, he circles back to you, but I will trust you anyway. Um, but then there are times when God just says, listen, you are creature. I am creator. Just trust me. I wonder if you can help us. When is it okay to ask those questions of God to call out? And when is it more appropriate just to sit back and trust him? Is there a line there that can be discerned? How do we do that, Dr. Broch? That's beautiful because the book of Job tells us there's always time to talk to God and ask him, really talk to him, scream to him, ask him, you know, pray to him. And again, you know, the book of Job is, 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 is another proof that we serve a Jewish God that answers Job, not with answers, but with more questions. But there's always place to, to talk personally, to open your heart to God and talk to him. And God is, what, what God is saying through the book of Job is, is, it's okay, I'm in control. Trust me, but trust me, not because what I can do for you. Trust me because I am God. I am he. Just trust me. It's going to be all right. That's excellent. What would you say if you were going to roll up this book into one main statement, your elevator pitch for the book of Job? What is the main thrust of this book? Why is it important? Why would God preserve it for us? So on, the, on, on one hand, it's, it's chapter one, verse nine, as you read, the question that Satan poses to God. Which, which serves as the motivation for the whole book. Is, is Job uh, worshiping you for nothing, for free? Or if you take everything, would he, uh, would, he, would, he, would he curse you? Would he stop worshiping you? And of course, we know that Job as Yeshua, because remember, Job is a prototype of, of, of the Messiah Yeshua. We know that Job passed the test. He really served God out of pure love. So, so the one thing is this question in, in chapter 1, verse 9. But the other thing that I would take from the book of Job is, again, the radical introduction to the suffering servant, a suffering servant, somebody who suffers, but still he's, he's, he's blameless, he's pure. And there's only one man in the history of this world that, that fulfilled this, this, uh, this uh, predicament. Mm. I like to ask as we close these scholars who seem... You seem so far above us. You know your languages. You've studied for so long. I still want to uh, give you a chance to talk about how this book specifically has impacted your life. We know, as I said at the beginning, all scripture is God-breathed and useful to conform us into the image of Christ or Yeshua, as you say. So in your life, as you have studied the book, how has Job, God used Job to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness, Dr. Broch? Yeah, so I have to admit that Job is one of my one of my favorite books. If I you know if I had to choose, all the books in the Bible are my favorite. But but, wow. but I love Job. I love the Book of Job so much, especially especially because it gives us a, a, an exposition of the suffering servant in the in the in the times even before the before Sinai before before Moses gave the Torah, and especially interesting. Listen, if Moses wrote it. So it, 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 imagine Yeshua telling the Pharisees, if you believe Moses, and, and, and we immediately go to the Torah. But what about the book of Job? The book of Job is, the, is perhaps the biggest testimony of the suffering servant for his people. Although his people always blame him and think he's guilty, you know, he's suffering for them. He's suffering for them. And in the end, again, in the end, in the final chapters, actually in the final chapter of the book, God is telling you, now go, go and pray for your friend, and I will forgive them. Exactly like Yeshua, our Messiah, did for us. 
Well, thanks again, Dr. Broch, for the time you've given us today and helping us understand Job a little bit better. It's so much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.